In the last week, I've come to a realization. I've been here for a year now. Can you believe that? Unbelievable. I began to think about all the memories I have this year. I typed them out pretty quick, too, because they just kept coming. These aren't all of them, but they just came so fast. I'm going to share a few of them with you, just some of the grand memories that I've had from this year. When Sharice and I were interviewed, it all, it all started there, I suppose, last January, which is a little more than a year ago. I remember when I landed, we flew from different places. I flew from Kansas City, and she flew from Cincinnati to get here. And uh, when I landed, I got a phone, or I called her to see how she was doing, and she said, Tim, I got picked up in a Lexus today. Well, Cindy Jameson went to get her, you know. Cindy and Angela took her out to dinner. She was treated right, right from the very beginning like she was royalty. I remember right before I moved here, I was in Louisville for a Nazarene conference, and I had dinner at the spaghetti factory with Lamar and got to know him that day, which was really exciting. I remember people showing up to move us in and how such a big group was there to help us out and get things uh, taken out of our, our truck. I remember the night before I was installed here going to the hospital to see Pat Hegathorn because she had been having heart trouble. I remember the day of my installation where, by some strange providence, my in-laws had already scheduled a trip to be in the Tampa Bay area that very weekend, months before we came here. So they were able to be here and see me installed in, as a senior pastor in my second church for the second time. I remember shortly after getting here, going out to lunch with Ann and Jerry Heckathorn at Fortunato's and having one of the best calzones I've ever had in my life. And since then, it seems as though we can't possibly go to lunch at different places, whether or not if we've scheduled to be there together. Trust me, there was about a week where three straight days, Ann and Jerry were at the same place that I went to, and not one of those times had we planned it. Last May, I got the opportunity to go to TNT at Treveca with our teenagers, and upon arriving there, was informed that I was our new district softball coach. That was very interesting. I was told we didn't have a chance to win, that we were usually one of the first teams eliminated, and that shouldn't uh, interfere with my attempt to get back here to preach on Sunday. We ended up coming in fourth place. I drove through the night and got back in town about three or four in the morning, slept for about three hours before I showed up here, trying my hardest to smile at all of you. That was a great weekend. It was a great weekend to get to know our teenagers in a different way off of our campus. That weekend, I also got to meet a young couple that was graduating from Treveca and wondering what God had next for their life. That couple is sitting to my right in the front there, and God led them here to be a part of what we're doing here, and that was such an exciting thing as well. I remember spending time with Dick Bryan going and visiting people and having him taking me or taking me to a, a park way off the beaten path, showing me where I could see alligators if I ever fancied that need. There's a beautiful boardwalk that just cuts through swampland. You would hardly imagine in the city that there would be a place like that. But it was great to see the nature of Pinellas County with him. I remember the times that I've gotten to eat pizza at Betty Whitman's house. Betty found out pretty quick that pizza's my favorite food, and she feels no need to cook for me because she knows that if I show up with Pizza Hut at her house, I'll be a happy man. 
Then, however, she starts feeding me M&Ms and ice cream as well, which are some weaknesses of mine. I've gained about two and a half, three pounds since I moved here, and I blame most of it on Betty Whitman. I'm just kidding, Betty. I'm just kidding. Last summer, Ed Jones and I began to strike up a relationship with each other. It began by him inviting me out to lunch at one of his favorite places. This terrified me because Ed is terrifying. Those of you that know him know this. And then on top of it, he didn't just bring me to a steakhouse or something like that. He drags me downtown to the Vinoy, a place that I would, would never have assumed I could have gone on my own. And so here I am with this guy that I know used to work in politics. And I know that if you work in politics, you probably have bodies in the back of your car. <laughs> and Ed is bringing me to this wonderful lunch at a place downtown. It's been a fun relationship ever since then. I enjoyed the opportunity to go to Bob and Grace's house and see their kitchen that is standing once again and hearing the story about a car that once drove its way through it. I had a great opportunity to drive with Lamar all the way to Nashville and take Amanda Holton to start college at Trevecca. This is a girl that, uh, that our church has done a lot of good work for family that's non-Christian living in a difficult neighborhood. She now is uh, studying in order to be in the ministry in her life at Trevecca. Lamar and I had the great opportunity of bringing her there and buying her groceries and getting her school supplies and setting her up in her room and helping her meet people and find financial aid. That weekend was a blessing. That was another. I'm telling you, every time I go to Nashville, I drive overnight. Goodness gracious, that Trevecca being so far away, that is going to be the death of me. But that's okay. I had the opportunity one night to sit with J.J. Wazinski at a Rays game and talk life and ministry with him and hear about what God is doing in his life and just being overwhelmed by the way that God does powerful things even in 20-year-old men. That night, Evan Longoria hit a walk-off home run and we got to celebrate being members of St. Petersburg in this community together even as the both of us uh, had to talk about God for most nine innings. What a great night that was. I got to ride with a whole bunch of guys, about two-thirds of them very, very active members of this church, and a third of them folks who were sort of on the edge to Cincinnati to play softball with them last September. That weekend, I got to know Ryan Peterson very well. Ryan's wife, Nicole, is a board member here, but Ryan hadn't really gone to church here consistently until about a year ago. I found out that that man... Uh, has a suitcase in which everything that Best Buy sells is stored away in it. He kept me entertained for a 12-hour drive to Cincinnati with all sorts of movies, video games. It was, it was the best ride I've ever taken in my life. But more so, it was good to get to know another guy, and it's been good to see how God has been working in his life over the last year. There was the chance that we had this summer when the teens were doing their mission trip downtown. And one of the things, the day that I returned from being in school, I went down there to help them out, and they were feeding homeless people in uh, Jackson Park. Do I have the park name right? Something like that, right downtown. Feeding homeless people. And uh, that day, the police got wind that they were there, and it was about the time that the mayor was feeling pressure to get rid of homeless people from downtown. And so police came and told Lamar to stop feeding people. 
And so he turned the grill off, and while Lamar was off dealing with uh, the police, I still had a line of homeless people, so I kept sneaking out hot dogs and kept feeding them even as the police were threatening us. I kept telling myself that I promised God that I would go to jail if I had to for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I kept hoping that that day wasn't the day that it would come true. But it was wonderful, wonderful serving those people and hearing those stories. It was a joy having one of them tell me that they knew Bruce Bordeaux and they knew the Celebrate Recovery program at our church and knowing that the ministry of our church extended all the way to downtown. Ministry becomes a lot different when you begin to hear the stories of people who are hurting. Just recently, I got to visit Lily Bellis while she was in the hospital. I played a game with her. Guess which Disney character, which obscure Disney character I'm going to show you on my iPhone next. It kept her entertained for a half hour while she had all sorts of tubes that were just depressing as could be to see in this small little child in her body. But to have the opportunity to have a five-year-old smile even in the midst of being tested was an absolute joy. I had the two Laurens, both members of Boca Ciega High School, convince me to become the varsity softball coach at their high school. I still haven't forgiven them for that. But it's great, again, to have the opportunity to get to know real people from real communities, families, teenagers, and be a small beacon of light of what God could do for people's lives in the midst of very confused, angry, and struggling teenagers. And it's a joy for me also to put both of my daughters in a Christian school and watch them be raised up in the Lord here at this place in our daycare. This place is full of so many good things and great memories. And these things that I've just sort of flown through and I wrote down in a period of five minutes, this is just one year. God has done some tremendous things in my year here with you. And it's been so great to get to know all of you and to be your pastor and to be your friend. I truly know that God has called me to this place and called us together. And it is my privilege far more than it is yours. Although many of you know that already. Wayne knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's so great to preach in front of you, Wayne. You <laughs> it's so great. But as great as we are, as great as we are, and we are great, and we are a blessed people, we are far from perfect, are we not? Far from perfect. And so the message that I've been given today from Ashes to Fire seems appropriate in a time where we can sit and reminisce together for just a moment, but also be challenged as well of what the church looks like. Today we're going to be reading from the second chapter of John, verses 13 to 22. Oftentimes Jesus is a nice guy in our mind, but this is a story where he was a far from nice guy. It's a story where he begins to announce his authority in Israel at the beginning of Gospel of John. He begins to make enemies before he makes friends. The story today is going to be on the screen. It's also in your Bibles in John chapter 2 if you'd like to turn there. Again, we'll be reading verses 13 to 22. And if we could, would you join me in standing as we read God's Word this morning? The Word of the Lord says this to us today. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market! His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You may be seated. This is a familiar story to so many of us. Zeal for my house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is very concerned for the church. He says, it's what put him to death. Zeal for his very church is what put him to death. And he, if you can sort of read between the lines here, he begins to sort of redefine what church is. The building, the temple, the dwelling of God. The temple is the dwelling of God. It's not the bricks and mortar that's around him that he's knocking over tables inside of. The temple is his body. The temple is what the Pharisees put to death. I wonder sometimes if this story is a one-time event. Or is Jesus still trying to overturn tables inside of the church? Does Jesus still have that whip of cords next to him? What if Jesus walked into our building today would cause him to reach for that whip? I have, a, um, I have a book that I've been suggested to read to you today. The good news is I'm not going to read all 250 pages. All right, amen, we can all eat lunch. But I'm going to pick out some excerpts from it and sort of, sort of deal with it. The book is called Unchristian, as you can see. It's written by the president of Barna Research Group. You've heard of George Barna, I assume? Well, let me, here, Barna is a researcher, so let me do my own research. Will you raise your hand if you've heard of George Barna? Okay, okay, that's good. George Barna is a Christian man in California who researches the church, spirituality, 
culture, all these sort of things in order to tell the church something. George Barna, I think, is a pretty cool dude because he meshes two of my favorite things, theology and math. All right? So I just outed myself as a nerd. I know that. It's okay. All right? But I love George Barna. And this is his, this is his young, young, young president that, uh, that he hand-selected, essentially, to take over for him when he was ready to move on. He sort of begins the book with a lot of things, but he says this, and and for me, this is where the whip of cords of Jesus starts in the book. Let me just read one page to you real fast. We can be defensive about the idea that we are hypocritical. This book is a, let let me back up for a second. This book is written through the eyes of folks who look from the outside of the church in. This is not written from the perspective of Christian people, but he does his research among folks who don't go to church, who are hostile towards the church, who are ambivalent and indifferent towards the church. He does his research there to ask them what they think of Christianity. And he finds out that one of the major things that they think is that Christians are hypocritical. Let's read on here. We can be defensive about the idea that we are hypocritical. We can ignore it. Yet what if culture's accusations of hypocrisy are God's way of waking us up to the overwhelming needs of others? What if he is using our culture to make us aware of how hollow religiosity and empty answers are? Young people searching for faith today are searching for authenticity. They want to find people to trust and confide in but they often find more transparent, authentic people outside of the church. We have opportunities to help outsiders if we are willing to put away our unchristian ways of interacting with them. Philip Yancey, you all know who Philip Yancey is? Let me see your hand if you know Philip Yancey. Okay, another small percentage. He's a, he's a very famous evangelical Christian author that you can probably buy in Walmart as easily as you can in, in a family Christian bookstore. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, makes his own candid conclusion. Having spent time around sinners, and also, he puts sinners in quotes, by the way. Having spent time around, quote, sinners, and around purported saints, I have a hunch why Jesus spent so much time with the former group. I think that he preferred their company. Because the sinners were honest about themselves and had no pretense. Jesus could deal with them. In contrast, the saints put on airs, judged him, and sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. If only our view of outsiders were more like that of Jesus... And if only we condemned hypocrites the way they did, they'd crush people or with the way he did, with the way he did. They'd crush people with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Matthew 23, 4. Think of the overwhelming perception among many young outsiders that, are merely, that we are merely hypocrites. Does your life point people to a life in Christ that bursts with freedom to love, restoration, purity, and transparency? Or are you burying people, insiders and outsiders, 
under the weight of self-righteous life, do you lift a finger to help? As a Christian, it's my duty to ask, are you lifting a finger now? Which one? I found with uh, restaurants that there's no such thing as a good restaurant or a bad restaurant. And it's entirely in the perspective. I'll tell you this, I said something about our Cincinnati trip earlier. Of course, I lived in Cincinnati for four years before I came here. And if you're going to be a pastor in Cincinnati, you have to eat Skyline Chili. All right? So many of you are from Cincinnati, you know what I'm talking about. Most of you don't know what I'm talking about. At the end of the day, you probably shouldn't know what I'm talking about because you're not going to like it. All right? It is, it is noodles, and it's this brown, sloppy sauce on top that tastes like meat and cinnamon. Okay? That's what it is. Some of, you, some of your stomachs are... Stomach. Some of your stomachs are turning right now, and others of you want lunch really bad, and I've lost you for the rest of the time. All right? That's just the way it goes with Skyline Chili. I eventually decided that I like Skyline Chili. It is what I call an acquired taste. There's one in Clearwater, which I think is kind of cool because I occasionally drive up there. Pat Heckathorn is super excited getting blessed right now because she's from Southwest Ohio and knows what I'm talking about. All right? You go there occasionally in Clearwater and you get your Cincinnati fix. I think the food is good. Pastor Lamar and the rest of the softball field team told me it was disgusting. And they choke on it every time they try to put it down their throat. But you go to Cincinnati and try to pastor there and tell them that their beloved chili is gross, and they will treat you worse than the Pharisees treated Jesus. Okay? You following me? I like it. I learned to like it. But at the same time, as far as restaurants go, me and the Anderson family couldn't have greater differing views of what a good restaurant is. You see, Rosa and Debbie are always trying to get me to go to DeMille's. Most of you know, have known the Andersons long enough to know what DeMille's is. They think it doesn't matter whether or not the food tastes good. The fact that you have a great relationship with the waitress is all that matters. Man, I have to concede that point occasionally. That really bugs me. Because for me, I want tremendous food. If I want to go out and eat, I want the food to be better than what I could cook in my own pot at home. That's my theory. We have differing opinions. And so Rosa and Debbie, whenever it's time for me to go eat in Rosa and Debbie, we have a standoff. Who's going to win? Are we going to go eat at, a, uh, at, at, at sort of a country home cooking restaurant? That's Rosa and Debbie's stance. Are we going to go eat at a place that has good food? <laughs> I love being the only one that has a microphone on Sunday mornings. I've learned, I've learned, though, that neither of us have the wrong stance. They're just different stances. We're looking at the same things with different lenses. We're looking at the same thing with different eyes, and both coming to the conclusion that we want to have a good experience when we spend $10 on a meal. Our experiences are good in different ways. So today, we look at this story of Jesus, where he comes into the church and he begins to throw the whip around. Remember, in the temple, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the teachers of the law, they thought this was the very essence of pure religion. 
They thought they were doing exactly as God had pleaded them to do. No one, no one knew the actual words of the Scripture better than the people running the temple. And yet Jesus goes in there, and he still finds fault. This whip of cords, this turning over of tables, is Jesus is challenging a religious system that was so embedded in its own rules and practices that it was no longer open to a fresh revelation of God. Have we become the same people that ran the temple 2,000 years ago? Are we so caught up in our own rules? Are we so caught up in our own letter of the law, reading of the Bible, that we miss what the Bible is actually saying? Are we so caught up in the way that church has to be done, the way it has to be decorated, the way you have to be dressed, the way you have to deal with your sin before you show up? Are we so caught up in those things that we have decided who God is so carefully and so meticulously that we have also put him in a closet and we will deal with him later? Is God free to move and open our eyes fresh and new to see him in a new way? Or do we already have God so figured out that we don't need his moving in our life? We live in a difficult time right now in the church and in life. You see, most generations, as it's time to pass on to the new generation, passes on to a new generation that's kooky but thinks with the same mindset as them. Every 500 years or so comes along a time where one generation looks at the next generation and says, they are so far off in right field, I don't even know if they're human. And we're living in one of those times right now. We just are. You see, could you imagine being the last generation before the Industrial Revolution and handing off the world to that new Industrial Revolution generation? Could you imagine being the last generation of the Dark Ages and handing off to the new people of the Renaissance? This is terrifying stuff because they think entirely different. Right now we live in a time where most all of you who I look, I'm going to spew some philosophy right now, so deal with me, okay? Most all of you think with what is called a modern mindset. And most people in the second service think with what is called a postmodern mindset. All right? You can't say that modern or postmodern is wrong. It's the way they are. And we have to deal with it. This is right now in this time, we are dealing with a shift of mindset. And so while you all are playing a game of baseball on the infield, the younger generation is off playing cricket in a foreign country. That's how different you all are. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? But even as they are so different, even as they're so different, they're reminding the church of some new and fresh and exciting things. In so many ways, they feel called and attracted to this Jesus of the temple who's saying, we need to freshen up and be ready for a new revelation of God. This book unchristian. I'm going to go through just real quickly what it says, but it takes the perception of what people in, in society say about the church, 
offers what their perception is, what people are saying the church is. And then it offers a new perception that folks who are coming up are trying to cultivate and articulate the church. And my hope is, as I share this with you, just for a moment you can see what perspective they're coming from and realize that God is doing something good and exciting in the church, even if it is on a completely different playing field from where you all spent your life playing on, all right? So let's go through this real fast and see if we can do this in the most peaceful manner possible. Now, I know, too, that when we talk about what society believes, it often stems from the media, right? The media drives what society believes. And so whenever the media wants to talk about church, they go and find the equivalent of the lady with three teeth that just had her trailer run through by the tornado. You know what I'm saying? All right, the person says, well, yeah, I saw the tornado coming. All right. They don't go, I've never seen any of you on Bay News 9 talking about your faith. I always see Fred Phelps and his big signs and picketing talking about what Christian faith is. And so to some degree, when you're outside of the church, it's not always fair what your opinion of inside the church is. Because they haven't come and interviewed you yet. And you have good and positive things to say. But let's talk about the outside perception. One outside perception is that the church is hypocritical, overly critical of people. The perception is that Christians say one thing, but live something entirely different. The new perception that young Christians are working for is that Christians are transparent about their flaws and act first and talk second. Rick Warren says that for too long, for too long, the body of Christ has been amputated at the legs and the feet. That there's no action, and instead what we're known for is having a really big mouth with no hands and feet to do the work of Christ. Another perception, that Christians are insincere and are concerned only with converting others. The new work of the church is that Christians cultivate relationships and environments where others can be deeply transformed by God. The emphasis here is an important reminder, and please hear me here, an important reminder. You are incapable of saving anyone. And for far too long, we've decided that if we argued if we debated, if we were apologists, we could convince people into Christianity. It is only God who is saved. It is only God who can save, sorry. It is only God who can save. We can simply be faithful to his call and share his story. There's a perception that the church is anti-homosexual, and shows contempt for gays and lesbians. But hear this new perception. Hear this new perception. Christians show compassion and love to all people, regardless of their lifestyle. This comes from the tradition of the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus' feet. Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collectors, who are considered ultimate sinners in their day. It comes from the tradition of Nicodemus, who stepped out of the Pharisees 
to hear the story of Jesus and eventually showed up at his crucifixion to care for his body. It's not about naming people's sin and showing contempt because of their sin. It's about demonstrating the compassion and love of Christ to all, no matter how close or how far they are from God. There's a perception that the church is sheltered, that Christians are boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. And the new perception that's trying to be formed in the church is that Christians are engaged, informed, and can offer sophisticated responses to the issues that people face. If I could just, uh, if I can sort of talk about Bob for a second. Bob, Bob Wade is one of my very good friends in this church. I love Bob. Bob, Bob tells me, whenever he and I talk about faith, that he struggled for years trying to know who God is and the truth about the Bible. And I try hard whenever I talk to Bob to give him sophisticated answers. I try, Bob. I try. And I know that even, even as there's a generation gap between Bob and I, he and I get to have these phenomenal conversations where he and I are together seeking the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what the Bible says he is. And rather than just pushing off these difficult questions, Bob and I try to engage them head on and try to come up with a sophisticated, strong, intellectual answer for what the Bible says and who Jesus is. And I think we come to some cool, cool conclusions together, right, Bob? We do. And that's what we're trying to do today, is to not just say, well, it exists in faith, I just trust God will sort it out but really trying to figure out the nuts and bolts of Christian faith in this world. Another perception is that the church is too political, that Christians are primarily motivated by political agenda and promote right-wing politics. The new perception is that Christians are characterized by respecting people, thinking biblically, and finding solutions to complex answers. And finally, there's a perception that the church is judgmental, that Christians are prideful and quick to find faults in others. The new perception is that Christians show grace by finding the good in others. Finding the good in others. And seeing in them their potential as Christ followers. I imagine if these perceptions have any truth in them, if, that we're, if we are motivated by political agenda, if we are prideful, if we are boring, unintelligent, and old-fashioned, if we have contempt for anyone based on their lifestyle, if we are hypocritical and hypocritical, if we are insincere and only concerned with our numbers, I imagine that Jesus would bust that whip out right inside of our church today. If there's even a hint of truth in those things that people outside of the church who are saying these are the barriers between me and a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, if there is any hint of truth in them, I imagine that Jesus would turn our tables over as well. So where do we go from here? This book ends with a, a story of the author. Now, of course, the author spends his whole time, you know, raising the criticism of the church. But he looks himself in his own eyes at the end. 
Let me read this story. It's just about a page and a half, and this will be the end. It is easy to say we need to serve outsiders. It's a, another thing entirely to make it a reality. In my role at the Barna Group, I often have to share information that's not flattering. I still remember one of the first experiences that I had when I shared some unwelcome news. It was, it was a project for a Christian nonprofit organization. Lyle, an insightful middle-aged man, represented my client. We conducted a comprehensive study of the effectiveness of his team's efforts working with people in recovery, for the most part drug and alcohol abusers. The study showed many things were going well, but just as many things were not. Weak spots needed attention. Rather than being defensive or ignoring the data, Lyle flew out to our offices to hear the painful details so he could accurately and passionately present the news to his fellow leaders. As I drove him to the airport that afternoon, Lyle seemed almost relieved to have finally gotten a grip on reality and a direction to pursue. Based on the questions he was asking, I could tell our day-long meeting had activated new thoughts and ideas that, if implemented, would enhance their organization. We were on our way to a small regional airport, passing by the fertile strawberry fields of Ventura County. While trying to keep my eyes on the road and rambling about the research, I didn't realize Lyle was on to a new topic. I wonder if anyone is thinking about connecting those people to Christ, he said. What, I said? What people? The workers there in the field, he said, pointing out a group of people hunched over the plants harvesting the berries. I had to strain to see them in the afternoon glare. I wonder who's thinking about their spiritual needs. I had no answer. I was embarrassed to think that I had never thought about them before. I was not unsympathetic to the migrant workers. My grandfather owned a small citrus ranch near San Diego, and when I was a boy, he taught me to respect, he taught me respect and compassion for the men and women who worked for him. Nevertheless, years later, I had driven by those strawberry fields time and again and never once considered the workers' spiritual needs. Lyle was different. He couldn't help but see the people, the individuals behind the sweat. Despite the economic and language differences, Lyle's ability to picture their genuine emotional, social, and spiritual needs was not limited to mere professional interest. Obviously, working with the drug and alcohol addicts was not just a job for him. It oozed through his perspectives and priorities. Lyle saw the people in a way I did not. Imagine a world where we begin to see people as spiritual needs and not begin to make lists about who they are. Imagine a world where we put away our eyes that are cultured by sociology and politics and the news and our opinions. Imagine if we put those to the side and began to see people with the eyes of Jesus. Philip Yancey reminds us that the eyes of Jesus more often were laid upon sinners than they were saints. And the story of Jesus ended up so often with people's lives being transformed because of it. I know that we talk a lot in this church about seeing revival once again. 
I think seeing revival would be great. I remember revival when I was a kid about being an emotional experience. Everyone was happy. The songs were good. The preaching was good. We looked forward to revival because we felt good. I remember it often being talked about on the last day of revival. For those of you that went, the last day of revival, we talk about the mountaintop experience. Do you remember that? Everyone wanted the mountaintop experience, and you were warned there's going to be a valley after this. It's going to get tough as soon as God begins to move into your life. But no one ever explained what that meant. No one ever explained how to, how to hold on to revival. The reason we so often talk about revival is because we so often become unattached from Jesus that we desperately need to be reattached. But I heard this week, I, I went to a, a, a two-day pastor's retreat where I had to listen to a preacher. And this week, he told us the story of an old pastor's wife in the Church of the Nazarene who used to walk around the church saying, I don't want to go through another revival. I don't want to have revival again. I don't want to do that. And you're doing exactly what I did. Who would say that? I don't want to have to go through revival again. Well, why is that, sister? Because true revival hurts too bad. True revival hurts too bad. I have to apologize to people for revival to move in. I have to set down my agenda for revival to move in. I need to worry about others more than myself for revival to move in. I have to take the parts of Jesus that I don't like when he shows up into the church and throws around some tables as much as I have to take the Jesus who died on the cross for me seriously for revival to move in. That old lady, that old pastor's wife said, I don't want revival because I have to hurt and go through a painful process for it to come. I don't know if wiser words have ever been spoken. A group of people sitting around don't experience true revival. But folks who decide dangerously that they're overly critical of others and not properly critical of themselves and therefore need to examine themselves in the Spirit, those people experience revival. Folks who decide that church isn't a place where I get filled with myself so that I'm happy and joyous and I can go and live a happy life, but instead, church is a place where I deny myself so that there's more place inside of me for the Spirit to live. They experience revival in their life. Churches who are more busy being the hands and feet of Jesus than, as Rick Warren put it, the mouth of Jesus experience revival in their lives. Do we want revival in this church? Yes. But may our lives and not our mouths express how desperate we are for that sort of moving of the Spirit in our lives. Pastor Wayne, could we sing a final song? The altars are open. I feel a real sense that God is moving today. I told Eric that I thought there was a chance that I'd be dead in the ditch after this sermon. 
But I knew this is what God called me to say today. I started out with all those stories about how much I love you because I love you. I love you. Pastor doesn't stay awake at night worrying about his people because he doesn't love them. But I want to tell you this, and I want to be as clear as I can, and you can do with me what you want afterwards. But as your pastor, I love you so much, I don't care if you're happy. I love you so much, that is the cry of my heart to see you be a holy people. Every minute of my day is lived to see you be a holy people. That's how much I love you. May that spirit begin to move amongst us all. The altar is open as Wayne sings a final song. I, I know that there's a way you're supposed to do church and what we're supposed to do right now is dismiss. But I just feel the presence of God is so real in this place right now. So what I'm hoping we can do right now in a church that has some walls still that need to be broken down, in a place where God really needs to act and move powerfully amongst us. I wonder if maybe there'd be a few of you ready and willing right now to walk out those doors and invite a family to come sit with you and sing with you for just a little while. Tell them you love them and see what they say back to you. And see if maybe today is the day that God is willing to turn us into one church with two services. They're going to keep playing and keep singing. Maybe a few of you hear God's call. Go to a young family and pick them out. They're waiting out there right now. I see them. Please go, go get them. And let's worship together for just five or ten minutes or something before we move along. Some of you are coming in to join us. God is moving powerfully in this service. And our hope and prayer is to spend some time worshiping together, praying together, and letting the Spirit just continue to move. I know from some of you this is just zero to 60, and I'm sorry for that. But join in with singing and worship. Stand if you want to, but the Spirit of God is here today. My well, before we break between our services, let me say a quick prayer. God, we want to be your vessel. Move in this place. Move amongst us. Draw us together. Separate us for your mission, your ministry. God, help us. Help us to see from your perspective. And Lord, if you need to take the whips out that you used in the temple and use it in this church and in our lives, we give you permission, oh God. May this church be a reflection of your very heart and nothing else. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're beginning to make that transition, so I don't know which service you're here for. You can stay, you can go, you can do as you please.